We open the Word of God together to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians has a handful of very well-known chapters, and this is one of them. One of the Bible's most well-known chapters on the resurrection. Though it is a lengthy chapter, we're going to read it in its entirety. First Corinthians 15, we begin at verse 1. <clears throat> Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory that what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, Afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. 
But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand ye in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But some man will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat, or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth earthy, the second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Here we end our reading of the scriptures on the basis of this chapter and the teaching of the entire Bible. We consider Lord's Day 17 and its instruction concerning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Question 45. What doth the resurrection of Christ profit us? First, by his resurrection he has overcome death, that he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he had purchased for us by his death. Secondly, we are also by his power raised up to a new life. And lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Sometimes our Heidelberg Catechism surprises us, and that is the case here with Lord's Day 17. Lord's Day 17 begins its explanation of Jesus' state of exaltation. Jesus' state of exaltation follows his state of humiliation. You remember his state of humiliation is the state of guilt into which our Savior entered, in which he humbled himself to bear our sins and pay for them, and thereby merit and obtain all blessings of salvation. Jesus said, before he gave up the ghost on the cross of Calvary, it is finished. In those words, it is finished, mark the end of his state of humiliation. He had accomplished all of the work that the Father had given him. He had merited All salvation blessings, and on account of his finished and perfect work, the Lord Jesus Christ must be exalted. And thus we enter into his state of exaltation, the state of glory, in which the Lord Jesus Christ takes all of the blessings he merited for us, and pours them out upon us. And that state of exaltation begins with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. On the third day. That comes back to why this Lord's Day is surprising. It is surprising because Lord's Day 17 says really nothing about that great foundational event that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing of the history is explained here in the Lord's Day, but rather Lord's Day 17 jumps straight to the benefits of Christ's resurrection. The profit for us. That's not because Lord's Day 17 thinks the historical facts of Jesus' resurrection are insignificant. No, those facts, and they are facts, historical facts. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact of the utmost importance. The reason the Catechism jumps to the significance so quickly is that it simply can't wait. To tell us what the resurrection means for us. You can understand that. Think about it this way. A messenger comes back from the battlefield. 
bringing the message that the king and his army has won a great victory over an invading enemy. So that the city is no longer threatened by the oppression of an invader. But there is victory on the battlefield. What is the first thing that's going to come out of that messenger's mouth? Not a detailed explanation of the maneuvers of the army on the battlefield whereby that victory was obtained. But the messenger is simply going to exclaim, Victory! The king has won! The enemy is defeated! We are freed from oppression! Celebrate and rejoice! That's what the catechism does here. Our King Jesus Christ has conquered our last enemy. He has won the battle. We are free. We are freed from the oppression of death and sin and Satan. And so the catechism, the messenger as it were, can't wait to jump to the good news. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus imparts life. Jesus' resurrection gives us a sure pledge of our future bodily resurrection. And so this time through the catechism, we're simply going to stick with the emphasis of the Lord's Day. We are familiar with the history of the resurrection. We know the story well. We're going to dive straight in to the prophet of Christ's resurrection. That's our theme. And the three points will simply follow the three benefits outlined in Lord's Day 17. First, by Jesus' Jesus resurrection, He overcomes death. He imparts life in the second place. And then thirdly, He pledges our resurrection. The prophet of Christ's resurrection begins and must begin here. First, By His resurrection, He has overcome death. What a statement that is. He has overcome death. And you can't replace that word He with anyone else. Death is that last enemy. As 1 Corinthians 15.26 describes it. The last enemy that shall be destroyed. And He is the only one that can do it. If there is any enemy that no mere human being can overcome, no matter how advanced his medical science is, no matter how advanced his technology is, no matter how he may strive to delay the coming of this enemy, if there is any enemy human beings cannot overcome, it is this last enemy, this most frightful of enemies, this enemy whose name is death. This enemy holds the human race in fear. This enemy has a stranglehold on the human race. And though man may fight as hard as he can, eventually every human being will succumb to this enemy, death. Because contrary to the unbelieving thinking of our age, death is not simply a biological process that is inbuilt into the creation. But death is the result of of sin. Death is the consequence of sin. The ultimate reason why we age, the ultimate reason why our bodies break down, why cells break down, why there is sickness, why there is death, sin. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 56 says, the sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin 
is the law. The idea is that the cause of death is sin. Sin is what gives death its power, its stinging power, its pain-causing power, its loss-causing power. Sin is what makes death such a horrible reality. Death is the consequence of sin. Death is the just judgment of God upon the sinner. Death tears man asunder in his inmost being, wrenching apart body and soul. Death is the great separator that severs relationships. Ultimately, death severs a man from God. And that's, that's the essence of hell. Death is the consequence of sin. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law, the verse says. And the idea of that is that the weightiness, the seriousness of sin lies in the fact that sin is a transgression of the will and of the law of the most holy God, the righteous one. Sin is not a slip up, sin is not a minor thing, but sin is an offense against the most high majesty of God who is worthy of our 100% complete devotion, worship. Sin merits death. And thus cursed and condemned to die is everyone that continueth not in the book of the law to do everything that is written in that book. Death has the force of divine law behind it. And therefore where sin is, there death is. Where sin remains, death's sting abides. And where sin is, death has the power to hold to imprison, to destroy. Over the sinner, death has a legal claim and a most painful sting. And it cannot be escaped. No person, no mere man, can overcome this last enemy. Because to overcome death You have to remove its sting. You have to remove its cause, which is sin. And as we've seen throughout the preceding Lord's days, we cannot get rid of our own sin. We cannot make atonement for our sin. We cannot pay for that debt. We cannot meet the demands of God's justice. The the memory of even one sin, which is an infinite offense against the Most High Majesty of God, is sufficient to condemn us eternally because of who God is as the Holy One, worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. We cannot escape death or overcome death because we cannot break the sting of death. Or turn away the strength of the divine law that is behind it. Thus, the reason the catechism jumps to this wonderful message of victory. He, he, Jesus Christ, has overcome death. We couldn't do it. Impossible. But he has done it. He is qualified to do it. And when he said, it is finished upon the cross, he did it. He overcame, that is, conquered death. As verse 26 says in our our Bible reading, He has destroyed the last enemy, rendered it powerless over all of His people for whom He died. 
you jump back up to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, we read there that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. There we, we look back on Lord's Day 16. Jesus died. He faced this last enemy. And He yielded Himself to this last enemy. And most marvelously, by submitting Himself to the clutches of death, Jesus overcame death. And Jesus took away the sting of death. He died for what? Does the text say he died for our sins? Our sins, not his sins. Your sins, believing child of God. He took them and he died for them to pay for them. And as the Son of God in our flesh, He is the only one qualified and able to offer that perfect sacrifice of atonement that is infinitely precious, abundantly sufficient to cover all of the sins of all of His people. That's what He did. He died for our sins. He took those sins. He took responsibility for them. And as our head and as our representative, He made the payment for them. That's the cross. That's His suffering. The sting of death stung Him for you. The strength of God's law, the divine law, was brought to bear against Him. Now you let your mind think upon that culmination of Jesus' state of humiliation, the hellish agonies, terrors, pains, and anguish that He underwent upon the cross of Calvary. There's the sting of death. There's the strength of the law brought to bear against the Christ and He died for your sins and paid for them all. And by His death, He took away the sting of death. Our sins put Jesus in the grave. But because He paid for our sins in full, death could not keep Him in the grave. And that's the Gospel announcement of the resurrection. Jesus has destroyed the power of death. Jesus has negated death's legal claim. Jesus broke death's power. Not just for Himself, but for you whom He represented. For you whose sins He took and suffered for and died for. He has overcome death. Conquered it. For you. That's the testimony of the resurrection beloved. That's the benefit. That's the first prophet. That last enemy. That you cannot defeat. That you are powerless before. He has overcome. And rendered powerless. Over you. Now. When God raised Jesus up from the dead, it was God's own public testimony that Jesus' cross was effective. If Jesus had stayed dead, if He had not risen, that would have indicated that our sins were not paid for. Our sins put Him in the grave. And if Jesus stayed in the grave, that means our sin is still there. And the sting of death is therefore still there. But when God raised Jesus from the dead, that was the public testimony that He was successful in His messianic work. That all of the sins which He took upon Himself and died for, He fully atoned for. The guilt is gone. 
And thus, death has no claim on him. And if death has no claim on the one who bears our sins, that means death has no more claim on you. The sting of death towards you has been broken. And the force, the strength of the law expressed in that curse of God is no more against you. Jesus took it. Jesus bore it successfully, completely, and thus he arises from the dead. When God rose, when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was God's public testimony confirming Jesus' words, it is finished. When God raised Jesus from the dead, it was as if God said, it is finished indeed. And thus, we are not in our sins. We are not in our sins anymore. That's the message of the resurrection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17, If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain and ye are yet in your sins. If Jesus did not arise, our faith would be empty. It would have no significance and we would still be in our sins. That is, liable to suffer punishment for our sins. But that Jesus is raised means we are not in our sins anymore. There is no more punishment to face for those sins because Jesus took it all and bore it all away. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And Jesus has overcome that enemy. And though we yet wait for the fullness of all of the blessings that Jesus earned for us upon the cross, that fullness which we shall enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth, yet nonetheless we can exclaim with Paul, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Gone, no more. Because he overcame death. But now, that's just the negative side of this first Benefit or this first profit of the resurrection. You notice that the catechism goes on. There's not a period after the phrase he has overcome death. But there is a comma followed by a purpose clause. That he might make us partakers of that righteousness which he had purchased for us by his death. Near the catechism points out a very important positive purpose For Jesus overcoming death. Not only does Jesus conquer death by breaking its sting. Destroying its power. But Jesus conquers death. By purchasing. And then imputing to us. His own everlasting righteousness. Let's look into what that means a moment. The Catechism says that by his death, Jesus purchased righteousness for us. Remember that righteousness is simply being in harmony with God. That's what it means to be righteous. It means to measure up to God's law. It means to match up with his perfect holiness. It's to have your entire being in complete harmony with the being of the Holy One. For the sinner, we are unrighteous by nature. We are out of harmony with God. We are out of conformity with his will. And thus the sinner deserves the punishment of death. But one of the grandest blessings of salvation is that Jesus purchases 
righteousness for us. We must see that that righteousness is our greatest need. Because the unrighteous must die. But the righteous, according to the justice of God, will live. Righteousness is the key that opens the treasure chest of all salvation blessings. Righteousness is the key that opens the door to everlasting life. We must have righteousness. And righteousness is not something we can get ourselves. Righteousness is not something we can manufacture ourselves. The gospel of grace teaches us that so clearly does it not. No works of righteousness which anyone performs can ever constitute his righteousness before God. How then can we be saved? By Christ who not only overcomes death for us and breaks its power, but Christ who by his work upon the cross, by his death, earns and obtains a perfect righteousness for us. What righteousness is that? Whose righteousness is that? Plain and simple. Jesus' own righteousness. He died as our head and representative for us, but Jesus also lived as our head and as our representative for us. And that means, He obeyed the law of God in our place. And He did so perfectly. He did so fully. He loved the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he did that perfectly even as he suffered the wrath of God in our place. He loved his neighbor perfectly as he loved himself. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. He was the righteous one for us. For us. He measured up to the law for us. And thus, he purchased righteousness, which he freely confers upon us. That's the wonder of justification. Justification is that legal act of God in which he imputes, that is, he credits to our account the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, so that when God looks at us, he sees us just as if we had no sin. Though we have sin in ourselves, we are clothed with that righteousness of Christ our head. Jesus arose as the righteous head of the body. He arose as the justified one. The one who is justified on our behalf that he might justify his body and clothe his members with the mantle of his righteousness. And that's then the second part of this first benefit of the resurrection that we see. By his resurrection, he makes us partakers of this righteousness he earned for us. His own perfect righteousness. He confers it upon us himself as the living and the risen Lord. A dead Savior can't give us any blessings. Jesus arose, the righteous one, that he might make us partakers of His righteousness. And so you see then, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only God's public declaration and testimony that our sins are taken care of, our sins are covered, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ is also God's public declaration, His seal, His guarantee, 
that we are righteous in His sight. The resurrection declares that we are accepted of God through the work of the accepted, well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ. What profit? What profit? Now and into eternity. Believer, you are righteous in God's eyes. Not because you've done something to deserve it. Not because you've made yourself righteous. But because Jesus lived, suffered, died, and rose again for you. You are clothed with His righteousness. Which you receive by faith alone. What profit? Having that righteousness of Christ, you now have a right to eternal life. You forfeited your right to life in Adam as a sinner. But in Christ, you now have a right to everlasting life. And God's justice now demands that you live. That you live. Jesus, the righteous one, your head, he lives forever. And you, as his justified member, must also live forever in him and with him. In him, through him, because of him, you have a right to life. The righteousness of Jesus Christ purchased upon the cross is the charter of your immortality. The righteousness of Christ then finishes the defeat and the destruction of death. Because death can only legally lay claim to the unrighteous. Death has no right to touch the righteous in Christ. But death can only serve those who are righteous in Christ. It has no more sting. No more power. All it can be is that passage. Unto the everlasting life the righteous Christ earned for you. The righteousness of Christ, believer, has put you forever out of the reach of death's claws. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? We can say that. We can exclaim that with all the more enthusiasm and comfort and joy because of the righteousness of Christ. That's the first benefit or profit of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus' resurrection from the dead has overcome death by taking away its sting. Jesus as the risen Lord makes us partakers of His righteousness, thus giving us a right to life. And now, in the second place, Jesus gives us, imparts to us that new life. The Catechism goes on. Secondly, we are also by His power raised up to a new life. When God raised Jesus from the dead, He raised Him by His divine power up unto a new life. And that word new is significant. When Jesus rose from the dead, He didn't go back to His old life. The life that He lived from His conception to His death on the cross. But He was given a new, heavenly, glorious life. 
Though Jesus came out of the tomb with the very same human body that he was born with, the very same human body that had been crucified, yet that body was gloriously changed. It was no longer of the earth earthy. But it was, as 1 Corinthians 15, 42-49 describe, a spiritual body. That is, a body that is adapted for heavenly, everlasting life. A body with life that has been lifted up above and beyond death. He arose with a body glorified. Glorified. Real flesh and blood. Real human life, yes, yet adapted for heavenly life, exalted above and beyond death. And Jesus arose then with this new life in order that as the living Lord, he might impart, give that very life to his people. Jesus died for our sins so that we Do not die eternally. Jesus arose so that he may give us life. And so that we may live with him eternally. You look back at 1 Corinthians 15. There's a couple of verses that bring out this important second benefit. The gift of life. Verse 22 For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus, the risen Lord, imparts life. Now, very important for understanding that verse is understanding the dynamic of representative headship here. The text is not saying that just as every single human being became subject to death through the fall of Adam... Every single human being is given life through Jesus Christ. The idea of the text is every single human being that Adam represented as head became subject to death through his fall. And that would be the entire human race. But now, every human being that was represented by Jesus Christ as the second head, they receive life through the work of Christ. And Jesus is not the head or representative of every human being who has ever lived, but of his elect. A verse such as John 6 verse 39 makes this clear, where Jesus says, Of all which he, the Father, hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again on the last day. There Jesus says, the ones who I raise up are the ones that the Father gave me. And so, 1 Corinthians 15.22 is saying, everyone who Jesus died for, his elect, shall be made alive through his work. All humanity died in Adam. All of elect new humanity is made alive through Christ. You drop down to verse 45 in 1 Corinthians 15. We have another comparison of Adam and Christ. The first head of the human race. And the second head. The first and second Adam. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. And that word quickening, you understand, means life-giving. Even resurrecting. 
The idea is Jesus, when he arose from the dead as our head, conquering death, the righteous one, he arose with quickening, life-giving power. And now by his quickening spirit, the Holy Spirit, Jesus imparts his own life to his own people. He does that by his quickening spirit, his life-giving spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes to the stone-cold, spiritually dead Elect sinner and translates him or her out of darkness into the marvelous light and life of Jesus Christ. The quickening spirit works spiritual resurrection. He raises us from spiritual death and infuses into our hearts that very new resurrection life of Jesus Christ. The very same life that Jesus came out of the grave with. That's life that the believer has. It's put there in you by the Spirit. By the quickening spirit. As Ephesians 2 verse 1 says. You hath he quickened. You hath he resurrected. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. This first giving of the new life of Jesus Christ. Is what we call in theology regeneration. Or what Jesus calls in John 3. Being born again. It's the very first saving work that God performs in time inside of you. Apart from Christ, you and I are spiritually dead in our sins. But at God's appointed time, the Spirit, the quickening Spirit of the living Christ enters your heart. And implants there that new life of Jesus Christ. Raising you from spiritual death. And that's where the Christian spiritual life comes from. It's a rebirth. From that new life of Christ planted in the heart. Springs faith. Springs every spiritual good thing that is a gift of God to us. Regeneration plants a seed of Christ's resurrection life. And then throughout the course of our Christian life thereafter, the quickening spirit cultivates that life and causes it to bear fruit. So you see, your spiritual life right now is the prophet of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus arose and by his quickening spirit he imparts life to you. Here and now, today, believing child of God, you live because He lives. How much then the resurrection of Christ profits us? Reflect on that once more again. You live. You're not dead anymore. You live with new spiritual life. You are alive unto God. You have in you now a life that cannot die. An unkillable life. The beginnings of immortality. Yes, this body will die. But death doesn't have the power to destroy this body. 
In a moment, we're going to get to the last benefit, the pledge of our bodily resurrection. But already now, you have been spiritually raised from the dead. You have the life of Christ in you, life that will survive the death of this body. Thus, at the moment of death, the believer is brought in his or her soul to be with Christ, the head. As one connected to Christ, a member of his body, united to him by that living bond of the quickening, the life-giving spirit, you have immortal life that cannot be taken away from you. That's why Jesus could say at the tomb of Lazarus in John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he can go on to say in the next verse, Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Because death's sting is gone. The risen Christ gives life. And death now for the believer is just the portal for the soul to heaven. And the grave is just the sleeping chamber for the body where it will wait for a little while till Jesus the risen Lord comes to raise his own. The last enemy is defeated. Finally now, the last prophet of Christ's resurrection, Lord's Day 17 ends this way. Lastly, the resurrection of Christ is a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. Here's our hope for the body. Here's why we could sing a little while ago in Psalter 29, my flesh rests in hope. Jesus, the Holy One, did not see corruption. God raised His body from the grave. And believers, children of God, holy ones in Christ, God will not suffer you to see corruption. Yes, the body goes into the grave. Yes, the body decays and returns to dust. But corruption is not the end of that body. Corruption does not have its way with your body or your believing loved one's body. God has His way. Because Jesus suffered and died to pay for your sins and to redeem you not only in the soul but in the body. You belong to Him body and soul. He will not leave the body He purchased with His blood in the grave forever. But his resurrection shows what he will do with that body at the appointed time. He will raise it up and make it like unto his own glorious body. The resurrection of Jesus Christ pledges our bodily resurrection. The idea of a pledge is a promise, a guarantee that is confirmed by some sort of visible token. The gospel promises, you shall be raised. And here, as you behold by faith the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you see what your resurrection will be like. Jesus' resurrection is the pledge. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 and 23 points that out. That idea of pledge. First verse 20, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. 
And then in verse 23, but every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Here Paul uses a figure drawn from farming. When the harvest is gathered in, the first fruits are the very first crops that are gathered. And those first fruits represent the entire harvest. Those first fruits, as it were, are a guarantee of the rest of the harvest to come. Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. He rises as the head of the body, guaranteeing that the rest of the body, all of his members, will likewise arise. He is the first fruits, and the rest of the harvest is coming on the day of Jesus Christ, the day when he returns. The resurrection of Christ is a pledge. You will be raised. And it is a pledge of what your resurrection will be like. It will be like Jesus' resurrection. This same body that will go into the grave will come out again. But it will be glorified like Jesus' body was glorified. It will be an immortal body. It will be a spiritual body. That is a body that is adapted to heavenly life in the new heavens and the new earth. That's our hope. That's the Christian's ultimate hope. And that's why we are not men above all most miserable, but we are a people most blessed. We have the righteousness of Christ wrapped around us as a robe. We have the new life of Christ worked in us by the quickening spirit. And we have this pledge, this promise of our future bodily resurrection. A complete salvation. Say, beloved, and mean it. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Verse 57. Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our faithful God and heavenly Father, we thank Thee for the prophet of Christ's resurrection. For us, who in ourselves are lost, dead sinners. We thank Thee that He died for our sins. That He arose for our justification. That He conquered death for us. That He has purchased everlasting righteousness for us and freely imputes it to us. That His own resurrection life, by His quickening Spirit, He puts in our hearts. And that He has risen to give us a pledge of our coming bodily resurrection. Thanks be unto Thee for victory in Christ. Amen.